0: New details emerge of Dominion Energy's connection to a shadowy gun pack. Plus, a look back at SHOT Show 2022 with outdoor writer Gabby Hoffman. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski, I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can buy a membership today if you want exclusive access to dozens of reporting and analysis details that you cannot get anywhere else, uh, and you'll also get uh, early access to this here show, this podcast, and the opportunity to appear on the podcast in one of our member segments. So... Head on over to TheReload.com and check that out today. On this episode, we have with us Gabby Hoffman, who is a town hall columnist, as well as the host of the District of Conservation podcast, and a longtime friend of mine who was also at SHOT Show 2022 this year along uh, alongside me and, and thousands of other people. And so, Gabby, can you give uh, just a little more information about yourself for those who might not know you?
1: Absolutely, and it's good to be on the other side of the mic this time because I've had you come on my podcast to talk about gun legislation- That's right. All that relates to the reload. So I'm grateful to talk to you and and share about my experiences at SHOT Show. But briefly, I'll tell your listeners and viewers a little bit about my background. So we've known each other actually for close to a decade. I think we both had a little foray or the same time foray at Media Research Center when I was just starting my reporting career and you were well into your way in your reporting endeavors as well. And I've been writing largely on a freelance basis for a decade or so plus now, but more formally, I would say in the last like six, seven years, I've been going to SHOT Show actually since 2015. This is not my first rodeo. And I freelance full time. I do a lot of media consulting because riding doesn't pay the bills for the most part, unless you're really lucky, but it's a good supplement and I love it and it's great. And covering this beat is something I've been really keen on for the last few years, whether it's firearms, and then branching out into the environment and conservation side of it, because that's often neglected. And then there's also a relation to firearms and ammunition in terms of funding mechanisms. So we love to draw the connection there, but I am a gun owner too. I have a CHP here in Virginia, and I'm actually quite optimistic about the future of our adopted home state and what holds there. And we'll hopefully talk about that as well. But yeah, I do podcasting, writing, freelance consulting. I've worked with a lot of Second Amendment organizations, whether to write stories about products. I'm getting a little bit into the product testing side more so, but largely have covered news and different public policy analysis as well, much like you. But it's a good area, and I'm glad there are more people taking an interest in it. And I'm very happy also for your success with the Reload. So congrats on all that you've accomplished as well. Thank you.
0: Yeah. And I I think you're one of the top uh, outdoors writers, uh, especially in the sort of political sphere there really aren't a lot of of outdoor writers um and i think that you fill that that space uh very well and uh you're one of the top outdoor writers that uh, is out there today so uh it's another reason i wanted to have you on um but mainly i wanted to focus on SHOT Show this year you were there i was there um was obviously different than in years past uh, this is the first one since uh the pandemic started actually uh the last one was 2020, but I think people forget this. Obviously, the the pandemic didn't really hit in the United States until March of 2020, and so there were a couple months of 2020 where there were big things happened, including uh, the the big protest in Richmond, Virginia, over the uh, gun control proposals uh, in this state at, at that time, uh, and then uh, Shot Show 2020 happened just before everything, and then CPAC uh, 2020. Should we brought that that as well? Uh, That happened right as things uh, started. One of the first really big cases of it, the first confirmed cases was at CPAC. So um, things are different now. uh, And uh, I'm just interested in your observations just to start off with uh, from this year's show. What did you think of it? What did you think of attendance Uh, and so forth?
1: Yeah, I know there was a lot of misinformation about different companies pulling out Some people were trying to dishonestly, I would say, preemptively describe like SHOT Show as a failure because of different COVID measures taken into account. But all the, and I think you saw this too, I would say most of the major exhibitors and sponsors and bigwigs were in attendance. They had some presence. You saw Mossberg, you saw Smith and Wesson, you saw big entities, small entities. And in terms of crowd size, it wasn't as big as like years prior, but I think you had posted about it. It was like 40,000 people. It was pretty crowded, crowded enough for COVID standards, certainly. And it was spread across two different forums. You had the Venetian Expo, obviously renamed from the Sands Expo. So they put it back, I guess, to its original name since I was last there in 2019. And then the Caesars Forum, I actually really liked it because it was so spread out, it was huge. and It was close to the hotel I was staying at. I was staying at the link. And the outdoor pavilion was actually quite cool. I got to have a few meetings there. They had the shot show sign if you wanted to pose with that. They had music playing beer and refreshments. And it was good that they had expanded there. I think they put the new product showcase there. I went to the breakfast uh, one of those mornings. And so it was a lot more expanded. So if they want to accommodate an even bigger crowd size, I would say once COVID subsides in the future, I think it's gonna be a lot more comfortable for people so they don't feel like sardines and they could see more and get their steps in. So I did like the new expanded format actually, because I didn't feel claustrophobic. Yeah. Um, as much as I love the crowd size, it's great. But I think for safety measures, unintentionally, the new expanded format is actually pretty good if you're concerned about crowd size and you want some leg room and breathing room. I really liked that and I enjoy that. And certainly the inconvenience of having to wear masks indoors, unless you were eating or doing interviews. Um, I think there could be worse policies. You could have a VAX passport. <laughs> so I was okay with doing that. I was able to, you know, once, once you're like rushing and doing this, it, it is exhausting to wear the mask. So they're a little generous where if you feel exhausted, you could take off your mask for a little bit, breathe, get a drink of water something. So it wasn't like you couldn't take off your mask for the said reason. So I know some people were brushing off attending because of that. I think among different friends and, and associates that I've talked to, a lot of people actually had COVID so they couldn't attend and they wanted to attend. I got to see a few people that I wanted to see, but I didn't get to see everyone. Also because Safari Club International was having their big convention as SHOT Show was ending. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people, even if they wanted to come to SHOT Show, they just came to SHOT Show very briefly and then they went to SCI at Mandalay Bay. So you had COVID kind of interrupting things. You had other conferences, people had other commitments. And even despite that, I would say it was still a success. So kudos to NSSF for hosting a trade show as safely as possible, hopefully no COVID outbreak from the trade show. I don't think so because they had so many things available for us. If you want a hand sanitizer, you could get it. If you needed masks, they had depositories everywhere. So there was no excuse for people to be irresponsible, uh, at SHOT show. So I think they were accommodating, but they weren't as I would say strict <laughs> as people thought that they would be. They would give you leg room, like I said, so you could breathe and eat and, and take off the mask a little bit.
0: I think that's a a pretty good overview of the situation i mean certainly there were major companies that dropped out um you know from ruger and uh beretta and and uh you know uh, sig there were there were a lot of big companies that didn't make it but there were still uh, a lot of big companies that did go um and frankly the floor felt pretty full uh the whole time maybe that's just my uh new Perspective in the pandemic world, the, you know, it certainly felt crowded. Uh, it, you know, maybe not as much as it has been in the past, like you've mentioned, but it wasn't like a ghost town or anything remotely like that. And in fact, it seemed far more attended than CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, which was the same venue the week before. And so, you know, it, certainly the ma- there was masking, uh, and it was pretty uh, universal. I, I think people, you know, indoors in a crowd, I, mean, I think most people would uh, understand uh, the risks of that in the middle of, the, especially the, with the Omicron wave. And so people were, were pretty diligent about it. I think it's it's difficult anytime you're at a, a large event now to have your mask on 100% of the time. I mean, there you're going to have some risk uh, regardless because you got to eat or, you, can, you know, it's just it's just life is is not easy to meet that perfect standard of mask wearing or whatever mitigation effort that you're gonna undertake. So there's always gonna be some risk involved in going to something like this uh, in the middle, of, you know, when we still have uh, a lot of concern, but I think people handled it well. Um, you haven't heard of any significant outbreaks, although obviously it could probably be hard to tell uh, given the state of things uh, at the moment, uh, whether you got COVID at, Shot show, or just at the grocery store, or something. Um, so, it, it, but it, yeah, it was pretty well attended. Frankly, like it, it just wasn't the ghost town that some people perhaps expected it to be. Uh, and it was interesting to see an event like this happen in in this sort of a new normal, right? As as everyone's said in the last two years. Uh, this this uh, and and it wasn't impossible to do business. I'd imagine there. For most people who because shot show is mainly a trade show you know it's way it's where buyers go to meet up with sellers to try and get product to pass along to their customers and so it seemed like there was a lot of that going on perhaps maybe with some of the bigger companies not in attendance some of the smaller companies had more opportunities to uh, sell their products so you know it might be a boon for them because obviously somebody like sig or or, uh, you know, Ruger, don't, they don't need that big presence at Shot Show to, to sell their guns. And maybe they're not willing to take the risk to their employees of even just getting sick, let alone any, you know, worse outcomes. So, uh, you know, it seemed like perhaps a good opportunity for those smaller companies. Did you walk around the floor much during the show? Uh, what were some of the most interesting I think, products that you saw?
1: I did get a chance because in addition to the interviews that i was doing and the forum which we'll talk about later i was able to largely use my new gopro hero 10 to talk to i think i got like four vlog interviews because i wanted to supplement my traditional you know political work there because you could get away with talking with politicians but i tried not to obviously be too partisan in asking my questions about their races but more so about their attitudes about the show but I, like I said earlier, I'm trying to capture more of the product side of the show. I have done so in the past, but now that I have this GoPro Hero 10, it's a little easier to record people's comments and do B-roll and intermix it all together. So there are four products I, that I'll be highlighting in particular, um, but they're a diverse kind of set of items. I was sad that uh, Silencer Co. was not present. I was looking forward to seeing some of their new suppressors but I think they assessed the risk of going to SHOT Show and thought, well, we're already being successful, I think, or maybe they didn't wanna come because of COVID. Not sure their reasoning, but I was disappointed not to see them, but I know that they will once again be there. But I got to see some eyewear that is essential for target shooting, SSP spyware, or eyewear. I think they're out of the Midwest and some friends of mine have worked with them for many years and they're like, Gabby, come to the booth and come test the product. So you'll see in a vlog that I'll have sometime in the coming week or so, me kind of testing it like, and seeing the radar more effectively. So it has really clear precision. You can see very clearly, I was wearing contacts then. So I was able to see a lot more readily than I would with my traditional glasses that I usually wear here. But uh, that was really cool to see because eyewear is extremely important. A lot of people focus on guns and, and shotguns and firearms and rifles, but I think the accessories often get neglected. So I wanted to highlight that as well. I also got to see, um, some friends from Trent Marsh. I think, you know, Trent as well. And he works for one of the trail cam companies. So he showcased to me kind of their new products that are out right now because of shot show and how they differ from traditional trail cams. So a lot of people who hunt like to record footage and, and video of animals that come to their backyard for leisure purposes or to track and scout different animals. So that was really cool to so learn more about their offerings. I also got to meet the folks from Polymer 80, which you have talked about at length at the reload and how they've been targeted by Nevada lawmakers uh, with assembly bill, I believe it was 286, and actually how the one of the state judges actually ruled in their favor, put a permanent injunction to forbid the state of Nevada from discriminating against them. So they were able to get protections. I think the judge ruled that under Nevada's constitution, under the First Amendment and other provisions, that they can't be targeted ruthlessly under that law. So they talked a little bit about some product offerings, about their 80 receivers, and then also about their court case and how, despite those challenges that they have been recognized as a legal business, Obviously they had that affirmed and they talked about the virtues of custom gun making, which I know is gonna be a very common subject. Cause I saw, I think from Rob Ribeiro, I forget his last name, but um, one of the guys who runs um, great second amendment coverage. And I know open source defense folks, they're really good about covering about ghost guns. So we'll hear about ghost guns and custom guns. So I wanted to get them on record for that. And then I got to learn about some new products from Zero Delta, which is also a, Farms manufacturer, a friend and her husband run the company, and they really know how to innovate the market with attaching handguns to make rifles. And perhaps I'm not explaining it in more specific it's terms. Like a but modular,
0: modular, modular firearm, yes. right? That they, they have some yeah. concept uh, that you can take a, a handgun platform and, yes. and make it into a rifle platform. Uh, can you explain? Can you actually talk a little bit more about that? that did you see that product in person?
1: I did, yes. And they had a similar model like that from a few years ago, but it was a, a modular product where they attached the handgun to the rifle. And I can send you more details if you're curious. And Rocky was at our dinner when we went to Guy Fieri. <laughs> yes, we did go to Guy sure Fieri. You...
0: And get yeah, the trash can. That's, that's, that nachos. was also something, yeah, so we all thing. did. But, yeah, uh,
1: so yeah, the, I'll have to reconnect you with Rocky. Yeah, the product interesting
0: though. Um,
1: yeah.
0: I mean, yeah, the, the, the possibility to, I guess, uh, Build out your your gun uh, in all sorts of different configurations beyond just you know adding rails or whatever to it uh, mm-hmm. is, is a pretty unique concept uh, at this point. Obviously, we've seen a lot of modular guns mm-hmm. uh, come up recently where the uh, the frame of the gun, like the Sig P320, is interchangeable with all kinds of different grips. But this sounds like sort of an, a next level beyond that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll have to connect you to Rocky. Again, uh, following our dinner, because I think you would really be fascinated by the Zero Delta modular gun that they have. It was really cool sure. to see.
0: Yeah, I mean, there were there were a lot of interesting products uh, on the floor this year that I ran across as well, or at sh- at range day too. Um, you, you know, you had uh, the the Lago Alien, which I've talked about uh, with uh, Ian McCollum from Forgotten Weapons. He's he's very favorite, you know, very big on that gun. He, he he's very excited about. It the sort of uh, innovations in it, the, sort of, the combination of technologies that are a bit different from what most handguns on the market today are utilizing. And I actually saw him at the the booth for Logo. Oh, did you? Yeah, I ran into him there. So that was kind of uh, serendipitous, I guess. And I shot the gun. And, and yeah, you, you can tell a difference, I think, in the follow-up shots when you're rapid you know rapid firing there's not as much muzzle flip the gun does not rise up as much so it's easier to keep it on target consistently uh which i think is going to benefit a lot of people uh right now it's probably only beneficial to the sort of competitor market uh, or the really high-end market because it's like a four thousand dollar gun in its current configuration but it, it was good to shoot that and then you know I walked around and saw um, for instance rock island armory is is getting into their making their own guns. It's sort of like uh what Kimber did you know usually rock rock at first Kimber was doing nineteen elevens uh almost exclusively, and then they started making their own proprietary designs for handguns uh from there and now Rock Island is sort of the same story where they started doing nineteen elevens and now they're moving into more proprietary designs where they now have a striker fired semi-automatic handgun it's a aluminum frame instead of polymer but uh, it was interesting to see them get into that and that and then the biggest probable probably the biggest uh, trend that i saw was the introduction of a new round um the 30 super carry which is getting a lot of attention and a lot of companies were introducing guns uh based around that caliber. It's a brand new caliber. It's similar to the 9mm. It's a little smaller, so you can carry more rounds, but I believe it's supposed to be, uh, ideally, it's supposed to be as effective as as your traditional 9mm round um, when it comes to you know, stopping power. And uh, you know, this, the 9mm is quite an old design at this point, uh, over 100 years old, over 130 years old, I think. And so it's interesting to see the industry trying to adopt something new like that. I saw I saw it integrated into uh the the Smith & Wesson shield line and including the the EZ line which is which is a fascinating product that they seem to be making more of which I I think is good because it's Have you ever used the EZ?
1: I don't think I have. I have an MMP shield. Mm-hmm. So when you mentioned this new caliber it actually is very much piquing my interest at this first, I've heard of it. So yeah. I'll have to read more about your reporting on this and, and how it differs or maybe relates to the, nine uh, millimeter round. Cause that that's really cool. If they're trying to innovate the bullet market, even, or mm-hmm. ammunition to kind of reflect the times and create something that's more versatile, has more staying power, and that could be effective, uh, whether you're, um, target shooting or if they do implement even into a hunting platform, although you don't really see, you do see in some States handguns. Being allowed to be used in hunting, but it's not as common as like shooting with or hunting with rifles, right? Or, and usually it has to shotguns. be very high
0: caliber. This is yeah. this is like, this is basically somewhere between a 380 and a nine millimeter, um, but it's it's meant to be sort of a modern replacement to the nine millimeter a modern competitor for it, I guess. Uh, but you can fit more rounds into the same size magazine is the idea, and you don't lose as much of that uh, that stopping power that people want in a in a you know self defense gun. Of course, at this point, the nine millimeter market is so well um, developed that you can fit fifteen rounds of nine millimeter into a, a single stack, you know, sized package—a very small carry gun already. So, you know, how how much of an advantage it is remains to be seen. But it is an interesting development. It's probably one of the only like big trends I saw in the industry this year. You know, usually you could see. Uh, you know, everyone's moving towards, towards, you know, bull bullpups or everyone's moving towards um, 10 millimeter or, or, you know, whatever, there's some trend going on in the industry. And you can see it at range day because everyone's got their version of the thing. And 30 supercarry is probably the closest to that this year, but there wasn't really a ton of, of, you know, trend making. It's sort of, uh, I think because of all the backlogs and supply issues and, we've, we've seen over the last two years, they're kind of just saying, look, here are the guns we have, <laughs> uh, these are available today. You know, we're focusing on trying to, to put these out, um, more so than. Introducing, you know, some, some new trendy products. So that was, that was also an interesting takeaway. I think
1: that's a good observation. I wouldn't have caught that because largely I've not focused on the technical side of the show, mm-hmm. product show products out of the show, like you, but yeah. I always look to see like if there is a trend, but I didn't see anything. I think largely because of your re- reasons, because there's still a backlog. Yeah. There's a lot going on. Um, maybe individual companies, like I said, the modular type model is starting to take off a little bit more. I don't know if other companies were doing that, like what Zero Delta does, but I have no doubt several were innovating in that respect, but mm-hmm. maybe they're innovating, like you said, on the ammunition side.
0: Yeah. and um, But obviously products weren't the only thing going on at SHOT Show. You, you did have some political stories there uh, you know mm-hmm. I, I wrote about the smart guns there's a smart gun company that was presenting at shot show we have more coverage of that on the reload but but you uh, actually covered the governor's forum so they had a bunch of governors from red states come out to the show and talk about their policy towards gun makers and and towards uh, you know gun control and you went to that and covered it uh, can you give us a little bit of insight about what that was like it sounds like there was a lot of talk specifically around uh, inducing or encouraging uh, gun manufacturers to move to their states. Is that is that right? Or who was there and, and is that basically the thrust of this conversation?
1: Yeah, they had originally said and announced that nine governors were going to be in attendance and probably due to scheduling conflicts or maybe weather patterns or other factors, three of them were unable to attend. So the three that weren't, there were governors Stitt of Oklahoma, Gianforte of Montana, and Little of Idaho. So they were not present, although they were revealed to be the panelists. But the six that did show up, who are pretty much in the news often, I would say a few of them you hear regularly about, I think your audience is well aware of, of many of the uh, soon to be named people that I'm gonna drop, name drop. But we had Governor Christy Nome, who actually is it was attending her SHOT Show for the very first time. She told me in a separate interview we did together at the show that it was her first time ever and that South Dakota has a big foray on the business side in SHOT Show. So she felt it was prudent to come to the show to see what businesses were exhibiting and showcasing how it's actually a very integral part of her state's economy, the firearms and ammunition business and industry. And then you had Governor Brian Kemp, who's also been in the news a lot about different issues, but he is likely to sign uh, constitutional carry He wants to get that done, especially if he is facing primary challengers. And he also talked about how Georgia is actually becoming a pretty good epicenter for firearms manufacturers. I think the Atlanta Journal-Constitution just wrote a story a few weeks ago that said, Georgia is now home to like 74 companies relating to manufacturers, uh, firearms and ammunition and accessories. So Georgia has become a very good outpost or the second amendment friendly companies or gun manufacturers. So he talked about why Georgia has drawn in people. You had Alaska governor, Mike Dunleavy talking about how Alaska is a military state, the hunting culture there, how that invites people to widely accept guns culturally and also economically speaking and how he talked about his state's position being nine hours from Asia and nine or 10 or 11 hours from the East coast being centrally located as a trading outpost for manufacturers and kind of contrasting his state with California. So it was really interesting to hear his perspective. There was also Wyoming governor, Mark Gordon. Wyoming has also, as you know, attracted a lot of businesses from California, Weatherby being one of the most prominent examples to relocate their operations from California to Wyoming. So you talked about how the show is a great place to convene and meet with other like-minded people. You had governor Asa Hutchinson who is retiring because he's term limited. Uh, But he has been a staple at SHOT Show actually for quite some time. I think maybe his first SHOT Show was when I went to SHOT Show for the first time, but he's been going on and off since 2015, 2016, since he was elected into office. I think it was 2014 he was elected. He started going 2015, 2016. And so he talked about creating a culture, business culture that is friendly towards firearms manufacturers. They create incentives. They have welcomed businesses with open arms. I can't think off the top of my head which businesses are in Arkansas. Maybe Remington had a plant. I think he alluded to that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but how Arkansas was able to beat, kind of browbeat any of the challenges that, you, that they see uh, compared to other states. So it was interesting to hear his perspective and how he's been going regularly and how some of these other governors are just new almost to the show and kind of like contrasting their experiences. So it was good to see that some governors are new and some are veteran uh, SHOT Show attendees. There was also Pete Ricketts, Uh, If you follow the Chicago, I think it's Cubs or White Sox, I forget which team his family owns, but he actually has a history with one of those big Chicago teams, um, if I'm not mistaken. So your listeners who are Chicago fans will correct me, but I know it's one of those two teams off the top of my head, but Ricketts has really grown Nebraska a lot on the economic side to welcome gun manufacturers and industry players to the state. He's created incentives Uh, They've had legislation that makes it a more welcoming place to live and operate a business relating to the industry. And he also talked about how culturally it's important to encourage hunting. Nebraska has a really good hunting heritage that goes along the lines of their shooting sports heritage too. So he made the connection with that. And there was also, I think, did I list all the governors? I feel like I'm missing one, but um, there were six governors in total and they were fielding questions from Larry Keene, who is NSSF's uh, general counsel and also senior vice president of government affairs and public affairs, government and public affairs. And um, one thing that they talked about in addition to their respective states and what's going on and legislation they've passed or are considering, they were talking a lot about banking discrimination, which I think is the first type of iteration of what we call woke capitalism or crony capitalism that predated a lot of kind of the political machinations you see businesses now doing.
0: Yeah, but, but so I before think we get this, to that, um, yeah. I just wanted to to talk a little bit more about the situation with gun companies moving to these these oh, red yes. states because mm-hmm. you know obviously a lot of these companies have a long history in or had a long history in the Northeast, uh, in mm-hmm. even states like Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, New York, and <clears throat> now over the last several years you've really seen an exodus of those companies to these these sorts of red States like Georgia and, and Tennessee or, or, you know, Alabama, you know, elsewhere, um, all throughout the South, really, in search of sort of a better, better business climate because, uh, not only have a lot of the Northeastern States, especially new England States passed restrictive gun control that doesn't allow these companies to sell into, uh, their own state that they're based out of a lot of their products, you know, a lot of the uh, ARs and, and, and other, or they've made it very difficult to purchase guns generally Their handguns, uh, you know, in, in a lot of these New England states are hard to uh, obtain compared to most of the rest of the country. And so you've also seen them start to go after manufacturers and trying to, for instance, hold them liable for the criminal use of guns by, you know, that, in situations where they're not directly involved. And so you've seen a lot of these companies start to Move away from these states uh, and into friendlier, I guess, territory. And I guess that's that was. It sounds like that was the overarching point of this uh, of the forum for a lot of these governors was that they the ways that they've made that uh, more enticing for these companies, the ways that they've encouraged them to to move to their to their states. And that's that's pretty interesting um, as a, as an overall trend in in the United States. But, uh, and then, yeah, so they also went into discussions over how some, some of the large banking institutions have tried to, uh, really control policy of these gun makers by limiting their access to financial resources, right. And, and some of the things that they're doing about it. Can you just give us, uh, maybe an example or two about, what these governors are actually doing in practice to to stop those kinds of, of policies from the big banks?
1: Absolutely, yeah. And I think it wasn't just these six governors saying that they're the only ones doing it. They've talked, I think, amongst themselves with other Republican governors about how to make their states more accessible for farms, businesses to engage in lawful commerce. Right. Because like you said, a lot of them are migrating away from historically relevant uh, hubs where they originally were started in New England and they had a storied history there and now it's unfriendly and and they've decided to relocate to freer pastures so they can operate legally and without the confines of gun control laws and also high taxation too mm. i think the cost to start businesses and maintain businesses in those New England states in northeastern states was very costly too i bet yeah. you they were trying to create they they created policies to make it even increasingly difficult for companies like them because of the nature of their work in addition to obviously the gun control policies, but high taxation also has driven not just gun businesses, but a lot of business outside of the region and more to the Southeast and also to the Midwest, I would say as well, excluding the Pacific Northwest, but more so the uh, Mountain West, and then maybe a little bit into the Midwest as well, and Texas. And one, I would say case study that I cited, although Governor Abbott wasn't able to attend Texas or attend the SHOT Show Forum, uh, Larry Keane had mentioned that Texas had actually implemented a state measure to prevent and prohibit businesses from engaging in these discriminatory practices, uh, to prevent them from taking out loans, to do businesses or to do business, but even individuals who are gun owners, I think it extended the discrimination, I think can even extend beyond the company. I think it. they were saying that the practices can even extend down to just a basic individual, like someone who, maybe it's an FFL dealer or is a second amendment supporter. I'm not sure if the scope extended to like a second amendment supporter, but I think banks were targeting even small FFL dealers as well. And so yeah. yeah, small gun businesses. So Texas passed what they're calling, I think the find act where banks that get public, I think backing, to operate in the state. They can't qualify for that anymore if they engage in these discriminatory practices. And there was also federal legislation, as you know, the Freedom Financing Act. There's also the No Red and Blue Banks Act sponsored by both Senators Kramer and Kennedy, although I don't think they've made any movement, but they've been introduced to kind of piggyback off of what we're now seeing happening in the states. But I think we're gonna see perhaps more legislation or more concerted efforts by GOP governors to either join in cre- encouraging legislation because they can't be arbiters of legislation. They have to confer with their state legislatures to be able to do that, and then they can sign bills into law. Maybe they'll join in a lawsuit if firearms immunity comes into question, if the Biden administration were to issue a directive to repeal the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, maybe we'll see some legal action from GOP governors in gun-friendly states like that. But it was interesting to hear that discussion. Brian Kemp talked about how he faced it from a different angle, but he knows how to challenge it head on because of what happened with the MLB, All-Star Game, and how they moved over to Colorado when actually Georgia was more amenable to hosting, that type of thing. So he was saying that even dealing with it on a different issue made him better prepared to continue to keep – uh, Second Amendment businesses in the state and to discourage these discriminatory practices, especially if he were to continue on as governor, since he is being re- um, up for re-election this year right. and is facing some primary challenges. And then um, Asa Hutchinson talked about how all the governors have to kind of work together and talk to the businesses, talk to their lawmakers that they work in sync with. And in other, I would say, departments that relate to business affairs in preventing such practices from being encouraged or being implemented and how they have to keep their businesses happy, keep them in the state, find ways to keep them in the state and not have them leave the state. Yeah. Because even even though they may be a gun-friendly culture, let's say a few years down the road, the legis- the leadership changes from, let's say, from a gun-friendly to anti-gun or not gun-friendly. So they want to have policies in place in their infrastructure to maintain those long standing policies right, and right. to encourage yeah. more businesses.
0: And and, uh, and I mean, I think it's interesting to see them bring that up as a main focus of this forum at SHOT Show. Um, obviously that, it makes sense because SHOT Show is, is a trade, uh, it's a trade show. So it's, they're there to talk mainly to manufacturers and dealers so, so you know, you see them focus on these business questions. Uh, but uh, you know, I think that that's a pretty fascinating wrap up of what happened at the Governors Forum, uh, and and you know, I, I think uh, we'll be it'll be interesting to see how big the show is next year. You know, it'll be interesting to see what twenty twenty three brings for for the industry for the show. Well, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what twenty twenty two brings to the industry, and then what happens <laughs> in twenty twenty three. When we get back to SHOT Show in Vegas again, will there be the same level of concern about COVID still lingering by then? Hopefully not. Right. Um, and maybe maybe we'll get to see exactly how much the industry has actually grown because, it's you know, you can't really tell from from this year because of all the the other concerns that were involved with uh, whether or not people were attending the show. Uh, nobody wanted to get shot show crud, right? Because that, right. that was gonna be COVID this year. So, uh, you know,
1: <laughs> yeah. you
0: can understand the hesitation uh, by many, but, uh, and then obviously, like you mentioned, a lot of people were already sick and couldn't come for that reason. But uh, yeah, I think, I think this year's show was successful like, like you mentioned earlier and, and uh, you know, next year's most likely will only be bigger, I would guess. So we'll have to have you back on at that point uh, and and see what happened uh, in, the, in the year in between. But uh, tell, can you yeah. tell people a little bit about where they can find more of your writing, or uh, if they want to listen to the podcasts that you host, how can they do that? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I will add quickly that the diversity of attendees was actually very noticeable this year. I saw hmm. I think there was a rapper present, which was really cool. I've seen celebrities at Shot Show before, but they were like very unique kind of attendees which was amazing to see like a lot more racially diverse because people we the industry is broadening to untraditional or non-traditional demographics so you start to see that being reflected in the attendees which is wonderful people who look different than what is conventionally held as a gun owner right. or a shot show attendee so i really wanted to communicate that yeah, across to and, your listeners and actually
0: and uh, the national african-american gun association had had a booth for the first time this year Oh, at the great. show i didn't get to see yeah them. they but launched awesome. um they launched a magazine too a, a lifestyle magazine uh called caliber so i got a piece coming on that as well i interviewed uh the head of the group and about this new this new magazine it's something unique i think uh, to see a magazine focused on black uh, gun owner lifestyle instead of the politics of it we talked a lot about the politics of it but but there's there's a whole unexplored uh topic in when it comes to just the lifestyle of, of being a black gun owner in America. So uh, yeah, you're right. I, I did notice that as well. Uh, and I think that that's, goes hand in hand with the recent trend uh, of diversification in the gun owning community. And uh, it's only accelerated over the last two years thanks to the pandemic and the related incidents that have gone along, gone along with that. So good point. Uh, but yeah, where can people find more of your your writing and, and, and your podcast.
1: Absolutely. You can follow my website, which is I would say the hub of where you can find all my links. It's GabriellaHoffman.com. I'll defer you guys to that. You could also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I post often behind the scenes looks into SHOT Show and, and similar happenings and do the activities myself. I'm not just blabbing about these activities. <laughs> I also try to immerse myself in them as well. Not as often as I do, like Stephen does, but I, I get out there when I can. I do other hobbies. Uh, I also run the District of Conservation podcast where Stephen has been a guest on several occasions. We love bringing him on because he get, is a repository of information and I can't cover certain things as closely as he does. So I bring him on and other guests like him who deserve to have more notice and my listeners appreciate folks like Stephen coming on. I also write regularly for Town Hall where you can find this Governor's Forum overview. And I have three more interviews coming with Governor's Christy Noem former interior secretary, Ryan Zinke, and also Nevada senatorial candidate and former attorney general of Nevada, Adam Laxalt. So those three will drop very soon as well. I also am a visiting fellow with the Independent Women's Forum where I talk about these issues kind of, but more of the energy side. And I've actually written about section 230 and firearms rights. Uh, for my Young Voices Fellowship at Washington Examiner. And I wrote about the ghost gun issue in Nevada as well. So that fellowship, I'm able to explore a little bit more on the Second Amendment side, where policy intersects with commerce, policy intersects with uh, free speech rights. So I try to dabble into a little bit of what Stephen does as well. But those are the links you can find me at. And I encourage everyone to connect with me. Wonderful. Would love to hear from you guys. Thank
0: you so much. And we're going to head over to the news update now. I'm joined now by contributing writer Jake Fogelman to talk a little bit about some of the biggest stories of the week. In addition to, you know, what what happened at SHOT Show, we also saw Dominion Energy, Virginia's biggest power company, was revealed to be much more involved in the funding of a shadowy PAC that tried to suppress gun votes in the Virginia gubernatorial election, last year than we first knew. Jake, can you tell us a little more about what we've learned about how Dominion actually funded this group?
2: Sure. Yeah. So the uh, latest FEC reports came out uh, disclosing the donors to all these political action committees. Um, And so we knew before that, you know, Dominion came out and said, we donated 200 grand to this PAC, this shadowy PAC Accountability, Virginia. Uh, But the latest filings actually show that several individual members of the company's executive leadership, uh, to include their CEO, Robert Blue, their head lobbyists, their general counsel, um, and even the president of operations in Virginia, all personally donated money to this PAC, which as you said, was personally running ads in uh, Republican areas of Virginia, basically questioning if Glenn Youngkin could be trusted on guns. Right, yeah,
0: the, Um, the shadowing aspect here was that th- this pack, which was created in July of 2021, so it didn't, hadn't been around before then, was running ads against Glenn Youngkin on the issue of guns, but they were targeting specifically Republican areas of the state, and they were run by uh, essentially a, a liberal um, consulting group. And they used Act Blue as their fundraising platform, which is the fundraising platform for Democrats and, and liberal causes throughout the country. And so there was a lot of questioning about how genuine their concerns over Glenn Youngkin not being endorsed by the NRA or the Virginia Citizens Defense League were, especially since they didn't run ads against, you know, Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat who, uh, as far right. as their positions on the gun policy go, like they were very stark. I mean, McAuliffe supported not just banning the sale of AR-15s and other firearms, but confiscating them as well, banning their possession. Whereas Yunkin was opposed to that on the record. And uh, you know, so on the issue itself, there was a pretty clear distinction, even though Yunkin didn't pursue, uh, and he specifically did not pursue, the endorsements of the NRA and, and, and VCDL. But there was a lot of sort of uh, underhandedness to what accountability Virginia was doing. And it was fairly clear that they were, Simply trying to prevent or you know suppress the gun vote. They're were, they're were trying to encourage people not to come out to vote for Glenn Youngkin in these Republican areas because by sort of uh, concern trolling, I guess you could call it uh, on guns, when yeah. it was fairly clear that the the group did not have a genuine interest in uh, gun rights. So uh, when it came out that Dominion, the largest power company in Virginia was behind the funding for this campaign. That caused a lot of backlash, right?
2: Yeah, uh, BCDL, uh, which is the State Gun Rights Group, uh, launched a big protest campaign, uh, essentially encouraging their members to call Dominion and voice their concerns with uh, the fact that their power company was getting involved in politics in this way. And they also made a big get out the vote effort. And from all data we have, those areas of the state did actually turn out to vote. So the ads sort of backfired in that way. Um, but it also led to the CEO coming out and, and essentially disavowing uh, the donations to the group. He said that they didn't properly vet the group um, and that they they wanted their money back and they wouldn't donate to these groups uh, anymore right, in but, the future.
0: But you found um, that uh, there's, there's a wrinkle to that as well, right?
2: Yeah, so in the, the FEC filing, the day that he made those comments disavowing the group, uh shows that a donation was actually made by him personally on that same exact day Um, and i spoke to experts about uh, when donations show up on these filings and i was told that it's pretty timely it's the donation date is supposed to reflect the date that uh, a donation was made Um, and i asked dominion about that and they told me that well they chalked it up to a, a lag in the reporting system and said that all donations were made before they spoke out against the company and that they didn't right. donate after. So,
0: so the Center for Responsive Politics, which tracks these sorts of, of reports for the FEC, they run um, Open Secrets is the, right. the website that, that the group runs and is one of the top sources for information on uh, election spending like this. They said that the report is supposed to reflect the actual date that the money was given, uh, whereas Dominion claims that the reason it shows up as the CEO donating the day that they disavowed. The company was actually because of, uh, you know, reporting delays or or whatever. So, uh, you know, obviously we don't have a definitive answer on that, but, um, you know, people can decide for themselves who they who they believe in that situation. Uh, It's certainly interesting. I mean, I assume either way that, that those donations came very close to when he made those comments disavowing the company and saying that they didn't know what was going on, which I think most people will be pretty skeptical of that claim regardless, because Dominion was the top funder for this group, right?
2: Yeah, the company donated, the company itself donated 250 grand, and then the members of its top executives uh, donated close to 30 grand just amongst themselves with personal donations, which is by far and away the, the top right. amount.
0: And, and so I guess the, either they're kind of fools who didn't uh, understand what they were giving all this money to do, or they're perhaps not telling the truth about how much they understood about what this, this, uh, operation was going to use their money for. Uh, I think this was seen by many as a, a way of, for dominion to support Terry McAuliffe in the race without directly giving him money. Uh, Which is a common thing you see in politics, but something that uh, I think a lot of people uh, don't really like uh, to be misled in that way. Um, So, you know, it's interesting and obviously it ultimately failed and created a lot of bad publicity for Dominion, which, uh, you know, I'm sure they're still not very happy about. Um, But (laughs) anyway... Uh, Dominion aside, we we do have some more information from SHOT Show. Uh, I alluded to this earlier in the interview with with Gabby Hoffman, but um, there was uh, one fairly interesting development that we wrote up uh, pertaining to smart guns, right? So the smart guns have sort of been around for a while now, since the late 90s, this concept of using uh, technology to implement uh, personalized locks on firearms uh, using either biometric uh, readers, fingerprint readers and the like, or uh, RFID tags to ensure that only uh, the authorized user is able to actually fire the gun. Um, But now that interest in this has sort of exploded over the last couple of weeks because you have a couple new companies that are supposedly coming to market with an actual product soon. Uh, And I went and interviewed the founder of one of them at SHOT Show because uh, they were they were there at the industry trade show, which is interesting in and of itself uh, that you saw a smart gun company at SHOT Show this year. And uh, the gun, the company is called Smart Guns with a Z sort of aptly named group, and they have an RFID based locking mechanism integrated into their into a 1911 Pistol design, and so I, I went and and spoke with the founder to get their point of view on what what exactly the future of this market should be, especially given the political considerations around these devices. Because in the United States, in particular, you've had a lot of controversy because gun control activists have for really decades now tried to mandate this technology in exclusion right. of traditional firearms uh, you've seen the Clinton administration made a deal I think you talked about this uh, in a piece that you wrote as well uh, examining that's right some of uh, the history of smart guns and what advocates need to do in order to win over gun owners uh, on this topic right but it, you this started back in the Clinton administration, right?
2: Yeah. So uh, in the year 2000, the, the Clinton administration came to an agreement with the company Smith & Wesson, which everyone's familiar with, one of the biggest gun manufacturers uh, in the country. Uh, basically, kind of to put a stop to a lot of the liability lawsuits that were going on at the time, because this was pre the Protection of Lawful Commerce mm-hmm. and Arms Act. So gun manufacturers were subject to a lot of liability lawsuits for you know, misuse of their guns in crime and, you know, and so on. So the Clinton administration came to an agreement with Smith & Wesson, and part of that agreement stipulated that a certain percentage of all revenue that the company had moving forward would go to developing smart gun technology. And then within three years, uh, their entire stock of what they would sell w- would have to be smart guns, or these so-called right. personalized guns, um, which, as we know, created a, a massive backlash. The NRA led a huge boycott campaign against Smith & Wesson. Um, they, they basically went bankrupt, uh, and they were bought out by another company as a result. And they have since ceased that push. Yeah. For, they, uh, they
0: very quickly from that. After the incredible amount of backlash they obtained. Um, but the idea of mandating smart guns did not die there. Uh, you had New Jersey a couple of years later in 2002, right. pass a law that said once any smart gun was available on the market anywhere in the United States, It would be the only kind of gun that New Jersey gun dealers could sell. Uh, And that actually created a, really the huge disincentive for making these guns at all and has kept them off the market. I think primarily the the sort of specter of that law basically killed development of these guns over the past 20 years. and. It was only recently that they repealed that law or they didn't repeal it they modified it right they they what did they do
2: yeah in twenty nineteen Governor Phil Murphy uh, signed into law basically an amend amending that act where it no longer uh, man would mandate that all guns be smart guns but once a viable smart gun that was approved by the state's attorney general uh, came to market, then every gun dealer in the state would have to one sell the gun, and two advertise it and list its features prominently in their stores. Essentially, right, you know, mandating that they so they it's push still the basically
0: a mandate. It's a little less <laughs> aggressive than, you know, the previous sure. one, but it's still something that the industry is uh, opposed to very strongly because they don't want to be forced to sell these right. guns if they're not popular enough. And one of the other reasons that's kept these guns from really catching on here or an interesting, interestingly enough, like you could see sort of the politics in the United States is a big impediment to the development of these guns. But you don't really see these in other countries either, even countries that have strict that are inclined to pass very strict gun laws like England or Australia. You don't see smart guns right. uh, over there either. So perhaps is not just. The political situation here that's kept them out of the country but also a lot of the concerns surrounding their reliability um, because you know these new smart gun companies uh, including smart guns uh, which i spoke to the co-founder tom holland there and he said that the law the new jersey law was disastrous and that their company just wants to offer an uh, a competing option to traditional firearms they're not trying to replace them they just want to make this uh, available as as an option for consumers, uh, and let the consumers decide. And you've also seen similar comments from uh, the the co-founder of Lodestar, which is another company developing a, a smart gun that's based on biometric uh, technology. And right. it's it's interesting to see some of the reliability questions around these these guns persist even today. Uh, I mean, it's kind of, it's sort of, on the one hand, it's kind of obvious, right? Because if anyone, anyone who has a smartphone has used biometric locks uh, hundreds of times a day uh, on their phone, because most use a thumbprint reader or face scanner or whatever technology to let you into your phone. And the issue there is that everyone knows that they're not 100% reliable. You You can commonly... Uh, have to put your thumb on the fingerprint reader several times before it actually reads your fingerprint, and if they're wet right. or if your thumb is dirty in some way, they might not read it at all. And so these are obviously huge problems when you're talking about integrating them into a gun that you might have to use in a life and death situation, right?
2: Not only you know in adverse conditions where your hand might be wet or dirty. But like you said, in a life and death situation, uh, having the, the presence of mind and the dexterity to perfectly line your finger up on a biometric scanner—you yeah. know—it's a tough proposition when it's a, a really serious situation. Um, so that that obviously gives a lot of gun owners uh, who might be in the market for a gun in that scenario some trepidation.
0: Right. But uh, here's here's what Tom Holland told me. This is a quote directly from him. We believe there are consumers out there, both in law enforcement and civilians that are going to welcome us with open arms. I mean, we're just providing an option. And so he was adamant about this idea that they're not trying to mandate this technology, that they have scenarios where they believe both law enforcement and civilians could be interested in this sort of technology. And to be fair here, biometric safes and RFID safes and magnetic safes have existed for quite a while on the open market, uh, and people will use them commonly to store their firearms. Now, they have some of the same problems, obviously. If you're using a thumbprint reader safe to get to your gun, you're gonna encounter the same exact issues as if you had that uh, biometric lock integrated into the gun itself. And so there probably is some market for this, among some people who who would rather have that technology just integrated into the gun itself uh, and skip that second layer, or maybe they want an extra layer of of protection on top of it. Uh, Obviously, one of the examples Holland gave me was uh, people with children uh, as sort of an extra layer of precaution. You know, they they might want to have a a lock like this integrated into the gun itself in this case uh, with smart guns they're using an RFID reader um, it's uh, it has a ring that you have to wear if you want to use it uh, that's that's what emits the radio frequency that the the guns internal components read in order to unlock it um, of course it's also battery powered so the, the batteries integrated into the, to the the bottom plate of the magazines and so you know there's another problem with it is that you have to recharge these devices for them to continually work of course and and so if if your battery is dead on your the gun it won't work is an obvious reliability problem but you know there are people who may who might uh, be interested in this anyway even with all those uh, sort of drawbacks because of the added layer of of security that these things all offer and then He also identified some scenarios where police may be interested in them. He said, um, he told me this, a quote from him. We've identified specific use cases or situations where law enforcement has said we see value in smart technology. We're not trying to replace a force's Glocks or SIGs or Berettas, but there are some specific instances like, say, for prisoner transfer, uh, transport situations, undercover agents work, security checkpoint crowd control. In all three of those situations, you're going to either see a prisoner or somebody purposely trying to grab a weapon away from an officer or a third party transporter and then turn and use that gun against those folks. So, you know, the, those are the scenarios that they envisioned. And they said they have a couple of law enforcement agencies that have already ordered guns and they're going to start shipping them units uh, next month.
2: That portion, I think, is big. I, I don't think he's disclosed yet which agencies are using or experimenting with he these has smart not. guns. But I think that that's a lot of source of the skepticism with a lot of gun proponents um, is the fact that in the past, law enforcement was exempt from these potential mandates for smart guns. Yeah. Um, and he's to see actually,
0: law enforcement. He's actually kind of suggesting that they're going to use law enforcement to validate the concept here. He said he told me specifically, quote, uh, law enforcement is only a way that will law enforcement is also a way that will validate to our consumer market because we've got purchases from them already. They're doing a proprietary evaluation, giving us feedback that we use to harden our product before we ship it out. It also tells consumers that, hey, if law enforcement feels comfortable enough with this technology, it's good enough for me, too. So you can see they're kind of uh, using law enforcement as a test case in this scenario uh, i'd be interested to to know if you know how in how many law enforcement officers are going to be willing to be the, the sort of test case for this stuff um given that they are carrying their guns for specifically for safety purposes instead of you know target shooting or, or, right. or something along those lines that's less high risk but but you know they are, they're supposed to be shipping out products next month and then it'll be available for sale to consumers in April, they, they told me. So, you know, I, I guess it's here, um, at least in theory. I mean, we'll have to see. They, they, they did have they didn't they had a prototype there, but it wasn't a working prototype and they didn't let me handle it. So I can't really give any insight as to whether or not it actually works as advertised yet. Uh they said they're gonna post a demo to their website uh next month that demonstrates how it works, but uh, you know, that still remains to be seen. I think uh wasn't there a video of the other company, Lodestar, there wasn't there an issue with uh, the video that they put out?
2: Yeah, there was a, a video on Twitter circulating uh where the Lodestar was doing a demo in front of their shareholders. <clears throat> uh it was supposed to be a two round uh live fire demonstration, and it appeared that after the first shot, uh the demonstrator got a dead trigger um it's tough to say for sure because the video abruptly ends but it, it looked like he wasn't able to get the second shot yeah. off so that might put a little bit of a seed of doubt in some people's minds that maybe the kinks aren't working yeah, out it just did yet look
0: that way from uh, when i watched that video too it, which is not <laughs> that's not good uh, i mean that's that's not going right. to help people uh gain confidence in in your technology and uh so we'll have to see where these things go uh, i mean I'm as skeptical as anyone else. I think about how well these will work and how many people will actually want them. But I, but I don't think it's going to be nobody, um, you know. And 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 really, to me, the bigger question here is the the politics of it. Will these be? Will they? Right. Will people try to mandate this? I mean, the president himself, on his own campaign website, uh, Joe Biden said that he wants all guns to be smart guns, those, he wants those to be the only guns that are legal in the United States, he said that a number of times. Um, so it's not like there's, this is a fringe idea that, uh, that these right. guns, once they're available, some uh, politicians will try to mandate them as the only guns you can own. And I think, uh, you know, given the reliability concerns we have still today, that's a, that's a big, it's gonna be a big, big issue. Moving forward, once yeah, once these come to market, uh, so and it seems like that day is is heading here soon. So, but uh, that's all we've got for this episode. If you are interested in supporting our indep- independent, informed journalism, you can head over to thereload dot com and buy a membership today. You'll get the podcast a day early, and you'll also have the opportunity to be on the podcast if you would like. If you are a member who wants to show up on. Another a future episode, you should just uh, reply to your exclusive Sunday newsletter, your analysis newsletter, and we'll make arrangements to have you on. Uh, we just did a member's interview last week with uh, uh, one of our great members, who's uh, who, you know professor out in, um, uh, who also has a popular YouTube channel. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of interesting people. We've, we've got heads of, uh, you know, think tanks. We've got just normal people, right? A lot of a lot of normal gun owners were subscribed to the to the reload, but you also have uh, heads of the different gun uh, groups, whether the gun rights groups or the gun control groups. They are you have a lot of members from those organizations. We have a, a number of staff uh, on Capitol Hill are members, so you know it's an eclectic group, and I like to learn a little bit about each and every one and what what brought people together into into this uh, community so if you're if you're a member and you want to be on just let us know uh, but that that's all we've got and uh, we'll see you again next week